0: Can I ask about working with another actor who, who did have a reputation for being somewhat difficult around that time, but he is one of my favourite actors, and it's a film that I've watched fairly recently and enjoyed it enormously, uh, and it's Peter Sellers in The Blockhouse. How was, how was Peter Sellers to work with?
1: Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful guy. No problem whatsoever with Peter as far as I was concerned. Mm. We, just, we just got on fine. He, he was a very, very fine actor, as you said. We just got on with it. It's purely a professional relationship.
0: It's curious, isn't it? I think some actors with with reputations like that just turn out to be perfectionists.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. He was certainly was a perfectionist. There's no doubt about that. But uh, hopefully, we were okay. The blockhouse is a very, very good film. The problem, with it was that it um, nobody quite knew who owned it. So. It didn't get repeated very much or seen yeah. uh, 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 around the world, which it should have been because it was a good film. <laughs>
2: Your favorite Uncle Goompod here again, with minutes of fun packed into an hour or so. Uh, my guest this week is the writer and summer wino, Bob Fisher. Bob and I were talking for quite a bit before I pressed record, and we were, among other things, we were talking about um, that whole uh, hauntology thing. And we drop into the conversation where Bob is talking about Scarred for Life. So, what is Scarred for Life, Bob?
0: Okay, Scarred for Life is. Um... I didn't write the books, but it's uh, there are two huge books now by two guys called Stephen Brotherston and Dave Lawrence, and um, uh, they're just a compendium of like absolutely exhaustive account of kind of 1970s and 80s kids, mainly TV, but other bits and pieces in there as well, and all the stuff that traumatised the kids of that generation. Um, so I read the books, mm-hmm. I thought they were fantastic, and... Um, I ended up, I was working on, um, I was a local radio presenter on BBC Tees for 20 years. So um, 20, 2017, when the first book came out, I got Steve and Dave on my radio show as guests and we got on like a house on fire. Um, And then we've ended up touring. We do a live Scarred for Life show. I host it and basically interview the pair of them on stage about their memories of all of this stuff. Um, So that's taken on like a weird life of its own over the last couple of years. Um, Obviously, we had a couple of years off, but we've gone back to it in the last six months and it's been really nice. So it's kind of really interesting hearing like we do the show and then afterwards we do a QA with the audience and it's really interesting hearing like other people's recollections of like strange things that they were traumatized by as kids and it often is stuff that you wouldn't expect. Like the stuff that kids were scared of is often not what what you would expect. It's not obvious stuff. It is like, you know, an advert or some kind of weird cartoon that wasn't intended to be scary at all, but just got Kids in the wrong way, or you know, it's just something that was kind of like Nosy Bonk. Nosy Bonk Ooh, is a big yeah, one yeah. from from mm. Jigsaw that, like, nobody nowhere was that intended to be scary in the slightest. You know, <laughs> producers of Jigsaw and Adrian Headley, who was in the mask, just thought it was a whimsical, funny character. But it's one that comes up again and again when we do the show. Uh, like, we show a slide of him on the screen and people, you know, there are 50-year-old people in the audience that have to look away. <laughs> so, oh, Christ, no, it's nosy bonk. So, yeah, stuff like that is really interesting. What, what about um, the
2: original Bungle?
0: Yeah, oh, God, yeah. yeah. You just like, you look at that and you think, you think, what what were they thinking? <laughs> who, who on the production team of Rainbow saw that costume and saw those eyes boring into your soul? And thought, yep, yeah, that's it. That's the one. That's what kids will love. Is this terrifying bug-eyed bear? <laughs> um, have you seen?
2: The, have you seen those? You know, those websites that have like a badly stuffed family pets.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, like one of those. It's like one of those, there isn't is. it? There's an element of taxidermy gone yeah. wrong about the original Bungle. Yeah, there is absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> when
2: I, because we got a lot of British telly when I was a kid, and yeah. the the, because I'm thinking about this, Um the thing that. It didn't scare me, but it unnerved unnerved me, which I think is probably mm. the the common yeah, reaction.
0: That was what interests me yeah. more. Actually, is that kind of stuff. Was
2: the you know the Phoenix of the carpet from?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I watched it reasonably recently, actually. Yeah.
2: yeah so the actual Phoenix It's right?
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: just unnerved me.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's not a great piece of sp- no. <laughs> special effects, is it? No, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, no. Um. Um, yeah, it's, in, it's intriguing the things that that just strike a chord with some kids. And I think that's why I kind of, I can understand why some people say, no, no, you're wrong. These feelings, you, you know, you're imagining them because it seems to be so subjective. You know, it's, it's different kids were affected by very different things and often the things that just weren't intended to scare them at all. Um, well, the, 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 I find that really interesting. Yeah,
2: the the yeah. only really scary thing I can think of from my childhood was the Count from Sesame Street. <laughs> right. Okay. I think it, it was because he had purple skin. I think, and he had. He, anyway, anyway, anyway. Um,
0: if we're gonna get purplish yeah, here, I'm out.
2: Yeah. You. I've, I've, I've sort of lapsed into my private hell. <laughs> 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 the Haunted Generation Radio Show. I was listening to some of that oh, right. yes. um, yeah, which yeah, is what yeah. you do on mixcloud yeah yes yeah um and just a sample quote <laughs> just jumped out of it. i wrote it down oh, you dear. played i think was, was it the theme to the tomorrow people and you said i did um uh, this this makes me think of peter davidson in navy blue underpants yes <laughs>
0: it does because <laughs> peter davidson was in the tomorrow people wearing navy blue underpants <laughs> I'm, inti- I'm entirely literal with these things. Yeah. If you're looking for any level of profundity or hidden depth, you've mm. come to the wrong person. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, and, and, right, can you tell me, because this really intrigues me, people listening to this, you know, um, yes, this is a, it's called GoonPod. It's about the Goon Show, but it's it's more than that. It's about Sellers, Zeke, and Milligan, even mm. Benteen, you know, and their solo stuff. And obviously you've joined me today to talk about a particular film um, specifically, but... I like these conversations to be to open up to be quite broad. And people that listen to this, I think, are generally British comedy fans. Yeah. Okay. And and you know, old, you know, contemporary but also classic British comedy. And the iron horse of certainly of BBC sitcoms for what, 30 years was was <laughs> was certainly last of the summer wine.
0: 37. 37, 37 right. counter.
2: Uh, now can you tell me about your fascination with this show
0: yeah absolutely i mean it was a program that i loved as a kid um, as I, indeed I loved lots of sitcoms as a kid. They were very much my thing. Um, Last of the Summer Wine was one that I used to watch. So I watched a lot of comedy with my dad mm. when I was a kid, who was a huge comedy fan. And I guess, you know, it ties in neatly because my, my dad was born in 1939 and was exactly the generation to have grown up with the goons. And indeed, he, he absolutely adored the goons as a teenager. So I kind of grew up... You know, I knew all about Milligan and Sellers um, as as a kid. Um, so I, I certainly got all of that from my dad. And my dad's tastes kind of evolved in a really nice way for a kid of that generation. So my, my dad's... You know, his, his love of the goons possibly predictably transferred to Monty Python. So I had Monty mm-hmm. Python chucked in the mix when I was a kid. And in the 80s, he became really interested in alternative comedy, which, you know, I I, so, I mean, I saw the young ones as a kid. You know, I was nine years old when the first series of the young ones was broadcast yeah. and amazingly i watched it with my dad because he watched it and he wow. loved it which i think was really unusual you know most of my friends were kind of banned yeah. from watching the young Ones, yes. but my dad who was in his 40s at the time um loved it and thought it was wonderful so i kind of had that that background i'd been brought up as a comedy fan uh, by my dad and, and as a as a fan of like interesting comedy as well i think um but Last of the Summer Wine was one of the shows that he really liked. Um, and so, inevitably, I watched it with him. And it was a big part of my childhood, um, which I guess is curious. You know, it's it's a series that's uh, essentially, or certainly for its first ten years, is centred around three older men that have been kind of written off by society. You know, they're... Um, compost never really worked Uh, as the name suggests he's taken compensation and he's just kind of eked out his life in poverty we we, it's it's suggested that he's never worked since the second world war Uh, you've got clegg who's been made redundant from a job in a lino factory um and you've got well initially a character called Blameyer played by michael bates and then foggy is the one that everybody knows played by brian wilde Uh, both of those characters have been pensioned out of the military and they've come back to their childhood hometown without any real purpose in life so you've got these these three central characters that are just kind of idling their time away and doing nothing and they're bored and they're frustrated and for the first 10 years at least it's quite kind of dark Mm. and it's it's about them just having nothing in their lives and wandering around these abandoned you know there's the the countryside in the first ten series, although it, it, you know shown to be idyllic in later years. For the first ten years, it's sort of post-industrial Yorkshire. You know there are abandoned factories and old mills and stuff that they hang out in. Um, so it's got this sense of melancholy to it, which is something that I think I really <laughs> oddly identified with as a kid. I really liked that. You know, my favourite children's TV programmes were often things like Bagpuss, yeah. that I think shared this sense of kind of old-school sepia-tinted melancholy. That was that was that was something that inexplicably appealed to me as a kid. Um, but I think with Last of the Summer Wine as well, the way in which they coped with that, that ennui, that that. Just that boredom, that that sense of having nothing in their lives, was to revert to being children, which you know in later years that became more and more a big aspect of the show. You know, kind of embodied by the idea of them constantly looking for for things to roll down hills, <laughs> in, which has <laughs> kind of become the you know the identifying image of the show. Um, well, it's one of it's one well, of those I've things. It's this.
2: one of those things that happened once, isn't it? And everyone says that it. Was
0: a regular truck oh don't get me started on the bath rolling mm. down the yeah. hill yeah no that is one episode it's an episode called stop that bath from 1993 <laughs> and it's a scene that lasts about 20 seconds yeah. um, out of 37 years of you know the programming <laughs> out of 295 episodes <laughs> um, but no yes it's the program about old men going downhill in a bath i i blame vic and bob for this Because in the mid 1990s, there was, um, it was actually a a BBC promotional film to encourage people to pay their licence fee. Say so, you know, these are the programs that the BBC does, and it was it was Vic Reeves, Bob Mortimer and Matt Lucas spoofing <laughs> a load of TV programmes, right. and one of them was three blokes in a bath. <laughs> and it was Vic Bob and Matt Lucas dressed as Compo Clegg and Foggy rolling downhill in a bath. I think that's what people are thinking of. More than Master Summer You're wine probably right, Yeah. The BBC. Never afraid to try something new. There's powerful police drama with detective in a wheelbarrow.
1: I'm in a wheelbarrow. This time it's personal.
0: We go uphill and down Dale with the adventures
1: of three blokes in a bath. And there's live and uninterrupted coverage of international anvil throwing.
0: And the long-awaited title clash, live from Cleethorpe's World Championship Panfighting. The BBC believes that great comedy comes um, from taking... But anyway, these- so, yeah, you've got these these kind of slightly melancholy older men reverting to being children, talking about their childhood, getting involved into quite childish scrapes. Something about that really, really appealed to me as a kid. Um, and it had always stuck with me. I mean, I'd, I'd drifted away a little bit from it. As the series rolled to a close, but then I, I met a guy called Andrew Smith, Andrew T. Smith to give him his full professional title, uh, or Drew to to me and his friends, um, and uh, we just discovered that we both loved Last of the Summer Wine. He's quite a bit younger than me. He's in his he's in his mid thirties now. Um, so he was kind of, you know, in his late teens, early twenties, when I became mates with him just through kind of archive TV forums and yeah, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but we discovered we had this mutual love of Last the Summer Wine that we'd, we'd both grown up loving the show in different eras. For me, it was about the 70s and 80s. For Drew, it was about the 90s and the noughties because that was when he'd grown up with it. Um, and we decided when the final episode of Last the Summer Wine was broadcast, we thought, oh, we'll watch it together. That'd be a nice thing to do. So he came round Sunday night, August 2010, and we watched the last episode together. And at the end of it, he turned to me and he said jokingly what we should do now is put the first episode on and keep going um and and as as the the weeks rolled by that seemed like more and more of quite a nice thing to do so we did start doing that and we turned it into a blog which is still there uk. cheap yep. plug um and the blog became uh, inexplicably became a, a live show that we took to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2018, all about our love of Last The Summer Wine, why it's meant so much to us, and a little bit of a potted history of the series as well. Um, and then we toured it in 2019 and there's now a book and it's kind of taken over our lives, but in a really nice way. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I've i seen a few of the earlier ones with um, Blaymire. I mean, mm. I've seen, obviously, I've you know, you, you, you can't be you know, the age that I am that you are and not have watched at least or at least seen at least a dozen episodes even even yeah. by accident you know you, you can't have gone through life without doing that I didn't I never consciously sat down and watched it I never reco- I mean I used to record lots of comedy lots of sitcoms okay. and and that wasn't a show that I that I would record but it right. yeah you know and I think it's because you, you certainly you're right that it was that there was more of gr- there was more it was slightly grittier. At the beginning than it seemed to become oh
0: it's really dark yeah absolutely. and clegg
2: seemed to be a lot more cynical than than he became
0: yeah absolutely this is this is one of our our, our pet theories that, that i mean clegg there's a there's a kind of gentrification of clegg that that occurs throughout the 1970s but in the early series clegg's quite a bitter character um and we kind of make a case for, like, Clegg is suffering from depression in the first couple of years because, A, he's, he has been made redundant from his job quite reluctantly, and he's quite bitter about the co-op that have made him redundant. Um, but he's also, which is something that's not really mentioned after the first couple of years, but he's lost his wife shortly before the series starts. The pilot episode of Funerals and Fish um we see Clegg visiting his wife's grave. She's quite recently deceased and he has a very wistful conversation with the vicar about, about death and about mortality. Um, so our pet theory is that Clegg is essentially quite depressed in the first few series and it's about the other two characters sort of dragging him out of that a little bit. But, yeah, he's quite... Um, is that? There's an episode when he kind of threatens kids. Have you ever heard the expression, "'Suffer little children?' You think, Blimey, you just wouldn't expect, you know, that's not a thing that Clegg would have said in later Mm. series when he became much more of a gentle, whimsical character. But there's definitely a dark edge to Clegg. There's a dark edge to the whole series. Um, We always always say the, the, the early years are kind of like Alan Bennett directed by Ken Loach. (laughs) <laughs> There's a, you know, it's, it's, it's not beautiful rolling mm. Yorkshire vistas and, and, and happy old men rolling down hills. There's a lot of bitterness in there and a lot of darkness and it's, everything's so grimy and grotty as well. You know, all the buildings in Homefirth are just black with soot and, oh, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> I love the darkness <laughs> of it.
2: There's, there can't be that many of them left, I suppose. Really, now, in terms of the Mike Gra- Mike
0: <laughs> not to get morbid about yeah, Mike these Grady, things. obviously
2: still with us, and, and
0: Mike Grady's around. Sarah Thomas, who played Glenda, yeah. is still no. This guy, the later series, yeah. I think there are there, are, but quite a, quite a few still around. Um... Paul Marina
2: recently passed, I think, didn't she?
0: Jean Ferguson, she yeah. did, yeah, and she was wonderful as well. I met Jean a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, and interviewed her, and she was fantastic. She did a one-woman show um, about Hilda Baker. Oh. She knows, you know. Not
2: on your nelly, is uh, <laughs> is required viewing in this house.
0: It's absolutely, yeah, all of that. Oh, have you seen... A, right, this was shown on BBC Four... Um, a couple—it's a few years ago now. BBC Four went through a period of showing the good old days on a Friday it night. I did. Uh, so straight straight after their Top of the Pops repeats, and there was an episode of that shown with Hilda Baker in kind of full <laughs> effect. <laughs> but her, because st- she had a stooge, didn't she? Called Cynthia. Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And 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 her Cynthia for a few <laughs> years was it was a pre-fame Matthew Kelly.
2: Oh, I didn't um, know that
0: so yeah absolutely and he's on one of the episodes of the good old days with hilda baker <laughs> so yeah there you go i just sorry Murphy... Tangents
2: all over the place oh no that's fine i'll cut all this, this yes. i'll cut this bit out but <laughs> um but... i shut up then no 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 the <laughs> bit i'm about to say i'll, sh-
0: I'll cut it out no but, no um, come on let's have it i'll be the judge of this
2: <clears throat> not on your deli right if you yeah. seen the episode because i think she went into hospital oh, okay and um and none of the cast liked her because she was she was always being she was being very she was always very uh offhand with the cast if she felt that she was being upstaged she'd be quite she could be quite oh, okay. difficult um but in her absence so so that the fourth series or whatever it was of not on your nelly um they brought in jack douglas who was her the character was her cousin okay yeah. um and because hilda baker wasn't there because she was in hospital they needed another character so they decided that Jack Douglas's character would have an identical twin brother. Okay. Right? It's obviously played by Jack Douglas. Yes. But they didn't have the inclination or the money or the technology to do split screen or anything like that. So, right. so you so never see
0: them together? You Never
2: see them together. Well, <laughs> well, you do see them together. There's an exterior shot of Jack and his brother walking out of the pub. Right, okay. okay. Right? <laughs> shot from behind. Jack Douglas is walking out. You can see Jack Douglas. You can see his brother, but his brother's walking backwards
0: next to him. (laughs) Played by a bloke who's five foot three. Yeah. And 20 stone. (laughs) David Rappaport. (laughs) Who can we cast? Who can we get to stand in? Jack Douglas's brother. Oh, that's fantastic.
2: Uh, Anyway, anyway, um, Listen. As
0: a complete aside to that, sorry, mm. I I know you're a, a bit of a Beatles fan. Yes. Um, I, <laughs> And this is kind of possibly testament to how small my, my mind was uh, in the 1980s, or how small I thought the world was. I remember getting, um, when I first got a copy of John Lennon's album, Double Fantasy, because I was mm. completely Beatles obsessed mm. um, throughout the 1980s. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point I, I wanted to buy all of the solo stuff. So at some point got hold of a copy of Double Fantasy. And, and, and I was always one for poring over the credits on record sleeves. So there, are on the sleeve of John Lennon's Double Fantasy album, produced by John Lennon, Yoko Ono, Jack Douglas, who, <laughs> I, no, <laughs> with the benefit of adult hindsight, was quite a hot shot American record producer. Yes, he is. Yes, indeed. But uh, to my mind, as a teenager in the, <laughs> the 1980s, <laughs> Who's Jack Douglas from the Carry On films? Who's uh, out Who who produced John Lennon's final <laughs> album, Alfie <Alpha laughs> Pettitimus? Oh, hey, give oh, hey, over! Oh, hey, <laughs> what a mental image that brings about! Can you imagine the studio sessions for that? <laughs> yeah, all right. We're gonna try one more take if that's all right, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all oh, right, hey.
2: Ah, anyway, look, we're gonna have to start.
0: Sorry, yeah. Should we actually talk? <laughs> Yeah, this is do, turning do, do into do the I talk about Peter Sellers at any point.
2: This is turning into the Roy Clark, Summer Wine, <laughs> Jack Douglas.
0: It's fine. Chuck it all in there. Yeah, I told you I'd go off on one.
2: That's fine. That's I see. I like that. I don't like to. I, I said to you at the beginning. I don't like to. Um,
0: you know,
2: I don't want this to be a podcast. You know, like if you talk, you, you hear film podcasts or TV podcasts where they just mm-hmm. they just break down scene by scene. I don't right, like that. Yeah, I don't yeah, like that, no, so. no. Won't be able watch, to do that just watch the film no, don't you know? credit
0: me with that level of expertise for God's no sake, we'll be in trouble
2: <laughs> but but when you and i were in contact originally and you said yep yeah, you'd, you'd be happy to come on and you said you, you get you said you'd either like to talk about the optimists of nine elms yeah or the blockhouse yeah and i thought hey the blockhouse has literally just come out on blu-ray
0: yes it has yeah. um
2: i'd never seen it i'll be honest um, because it's it's well, as will become apparent shortly, I'll, I'll give the reasons. But okay. I'd never seen it, so I thought great op- great opportunity uh, for me to get the Blu-ray to watch this lost classic, um, and um, and I did, and I'm and I'm really glad I did. But it's it's not it's 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 not boffo laughs, is it? It's not a brilliant date movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, the, so The Blockhouse. And and I suppose most people listening to this podcast probably haven't seen it either because it was never actually... It, right, so we're recording this in July 2022. Yes. This was filmed in June 1972, so almost exactly yep. 50 years ago on Guernsey. Okay. Yes. It never had... It was released in, in early 73, but it never had a proper cinematic release in and, and it. It was shown at the Berlin Film Festival once. Yeah. Um, never got a cinema release in Britain and it did play in Florida for a week in 1974. Right. right? Um, and then it, it just kind of got forgotten about and never. And it's one of those there's, there's one or two sellers films that kind of a bit like Ghost in the Noonday Suns, another one that never really got a cinema a proper release or, or got a release. And and day um, at the beach, I think as day well was beach. another one, it's, wasn't
0: yeah, it? Though? Yeah, no, he he, had a, he, was, he was a dab hand that lost films in the early nineteen seventies. <laughs> well,
2: 1970 yeah, because he had he had a run of. I mean, the girl in my suit. There's a girl in my suit was was fairly successful, but yeah, there were films from seventy to till the Return of the Pig Panther in seventy five, which were yeah. films like Where Does It Hurt, which I <clears throat> which I maintain is the worst Peter Sellers film ever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, there is one touch of genius in Where Does It Hurt, which is the counter with the like the, the fees going up in the corner, the medical fees going. I think that's right, isn't it? I haven't seen it for years. I haven't I seen it for, that.
2: I, haven't, I, I haven't seen it for years. The, the thing that sticks in my mind is that at, at the climax of the film, his Sellers character calls the the slightly um, officious, sassy nurse character a witch right and she responds by calling him a wasted
0: as <laughs> an insult i'm not that familiar no.
2: with uh, so i don't know what was going on there no. um, but you had soft beds hard battles you had yeah. um, i mean the Optimist is a good film it's a great but film. It, it it didn't it didn't make much money no. um and and this this film now <clears throat> what was the reason that you that you wanted to talk about this film in particular had you seen it before
0: I had seen it before, yeah. Um, I find this period of Peter Sellers' career really interesting. I I can't tell you how I came by it really. I i I mean, like I've said, I, I I grew up with a dad who was very much a fan of the goons and of Milligan and Sellers in particular. So I was very much aware of Sellers work and I guess I grew up in that era when the Pink Panther films were constantly on TV and they were the subject of conversation in the school playground the day after Um, and I also think actually when you talk about Peter Sellers influence on on my generation you know I was born in 1972 I think you've got to chuck in it'll be all right on the night as well yes which you know Dennis mm. Norden's clip show of outtakes which was massive event television mm. in the 70s and 80s and Sellers always seemed to be on it because he was just an inveterate giggler and corpser so he was on virtually every episode of it'll be all right on the night so sellers had always been part of of my upbringing and of that kind of general cultural background what got me much more interested in his work was the Arena documentary in 1995 yes. uh, on BBC One. Um, yep. And I watched that and thought, wow, now th- that he's a much more interesting actor than I've ever given him credit for. And then I think off the back of that, I read Roger Lewis's biography, Life and Death of Peter Sellers, which you know, is the size of a house brick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's this extraordinary kind of dissection of his life and work um
2: i i reread that on holiday a few months ago
0: really yeah i haven't i haven't read it for a few years is it is it still as fascinating as it, as it yeah as it it's not it has been
2: it is fascinating it's very it's entertainingly written it's not entirely yeah. accurate
0: so yeah anyway i read that and and in reading that realized there were lots of sellers films that i'd, I'd not only never seen but never actually heard of um and 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 some of those were actually considered to be lost films. Which there's there's something about my psyche that's always going to be intrigued by that. The idea of a a film or a, or a TV or an album or whatever, just something that somebody poured their their heart into at the time, being lost and unavailable. I don't know why that appeals to me, but it does, and it always has. So when I when I read Roger Lewis's book, I kind of instantly wanted to see things like you know, films like Hoffman, films like Mm. The Optimists of Nine Elms and films like The Blockhouse. Um, So I kind of, I, I started trying to seek out some of the lesser known sellers films in the late 1990s, which you know, you, you tell this to the kids today. Um, it's, it was, it, I mean, it was virtually impossible to find some of the really well known sellers' films in the late 1990s. You were very much restricted mm. to what you could find on the shelf of an HMV or whatever your local shop was. Mm. So I kind of did all right, but films like this just seemed to be completely unobtainable. So I think I, in my head, they, they built up an air of mystique. Somebody gave me a very crackly like bootleg VHS of Hoffman um in the late 1990s so I managed to see that but I don't think I saw the blockhouse until it did get a DVD release didn't it possibly about yeah, 10 mm. 10 15 years ago mm-hmm. um, so I didn't see it until then um, but I'd always been intrigued by it a cuz I mean Roger Lewis just I think he describes it as as one of Sellers' finest performances in that book um, yeah, and it, I was intrigued by the fact it was such a dark film as well for sellers to have made. Yeah,
2: Roger Lewis thinks it's a cracker. Yeah. And and you sometimes think, is that just Roger being deliberately contrary to received wisdom? Really, you know <laughs> what I mean? But um but no, he seems to think it's a it's an absolute lost classic.
1: My pulse rate is normally seventy-two beats per minute. If you multiply that by sixty, it would give you 4,320 bits per hour. Huh? Now, we have been down here about 24 hours before we came to this room. It makes three days, you know, exactly. Seems a pretty reliable way to give time. Providing we have candles. And my heart doesn't stay. The
2: sellers was very keen to do this film, and I gather was on his best behavior as
0: well. Um, Yeah, this is what because, I, you know, again, from Roger Lewis's book, Sellers was not in a good place in the early 1970s, and his behavior on films kind of went before him a little bit to the extent where, you know, he'd be he'd been a million dollar film star in the 1960s, he'd been arguably one of the biggest film stars in the world. And it's you know, but by, by the early 1970s, obviously he'd had health problems, which I think had caused issues with getting insurance for him on mm. films. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so that had gone against him a little bit, but his behaviour as well was becoming notorious. And I think you know, I, I'm guessing a combination of all of those things meant that by the time he made the Blockhouse, he he got paid ten thousand pounds for the Blockhouse, mm. Mm. which is, still, I mean, if somebody came to me now and said, "I'll give you ten thousand quid for a few weeks' work." i'll snap their hands off um and in 1972 even more so but for sellers it was i guess something of a come down but i think because of that because he wasn't doing like the massive hollywood films because he had to do these strange low budget british films that didn't necessarily get widespread distribution I think they're some of the most interesting films of his career because you see sides of him that you don't otherwise see and I kind of wonder if that's almost part of the fact that he was apparently very well behaved on the set of The Blockhouse Um, the fact that he isn't doing he's not the star he's not the comedy star you know he's mm. not having to steal every scene it's a very very dark drama i mean do we need to explain a little bit about the premise of the blockhouse here
2: yeah so it's set in a um so it's 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 france it's d day yeah but but we're not on the beach on the beaches it's a rundown forced labor camp mm. run, run by germans and you have these um a desperate bunch of Misfits, I suppose, is the best way yeah. of describing them. Of different yeah. nationalities, um, it's not a, you know, it's not a concentration camp or anything like that. It's just a labor camp, and mm. um, they're, they're living in extreme squalor and terrible conditions. And so the film begins, and they, they're getting up for for the day, and um, a work detail is dispatched from the camp, and almost immediately there's um, enemy bombing and a, a Spitfire attack um and it looks like i mean it's very well done because you've got the men sort of scattering everywhere on this desolate landscape and it looks like i I think the technical term um the budget was spaffed on on this sequence beautifully put yes uh because it's quite a quite it's, it's a yeah. It's, it's it's a very well uh filmed well choreographed sequence it and is
0: when i first saw it i thought oh that's stock footage but it's not at all is it
2: no and i gather that it was it was the <clears throat> the devil's own work trying to get that spitfire and, right. and someone who would fly because they didn't want to fly because it's in guernsey yeah they didn't want to fly it over too much of a stretch of water in case it went down you know right okay um so i gather it was a logistical nightmare but anyway the uh, i think it's about seven or eight men or maybe more like no, it's seven it's seven they you they, yeah, know a couple died do not they immediately um but they they get into this um what we will call the blockhouse which is this it's kind of like a, a a concrete underground storehouse yeah um but it it was actually a concrete underground hospital in real life
0: ah uh, okay
2: uh, because it is, it's not a set. It's it was an actual uh, structure. Yeah, and they actually filmed in this disused concrete hospital, which mm. that obviously um, uh, dressed it to look like a, a, a large cavernous store storehouse. Yeah. and they were using natural. Well, they were using candle. They were using lights. Limited lighting.
0: Shall we it's say. one of the darkest looking films I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: but essentially what happens is that um, there's there's more bombing and and they uh, the the entrance is blocked they can't get out they have to sort of go down into this climb down some ladders into this storeroom and then there's more bombing and and essentially they're entombed mm-hmm. in this in this large concrete blockhouse yeah now the the thing is that they very quickly discover that they have uh, limitless supplies of wine and food yeah and and candles up to a point um, so a lot of comforts and cigars and cigarettes and yes and, and but they also realize that you know there's no way out mm. um, and so you, you just have this gradual uh, disintegration of, yeah. of morale and and um, and we could go through that in a minute but that's that is the and, and the film just becomes grimmer and grimmer and bleaker and bleaker yes. as it goes on
0: and that's why I wonder whether That's behind the fact that Sellers was apparently very, very professional and very well behaved on this film, Um, because I get the impression in this period of his life, if he was expected to be funny, um, if he was in a comedy, then that would make him incredibly competitive. I remember seeing... um, a uh, wonderful actor, Dudley Sutton, Yeah, um, he's in, it's one of the seventies mm. Pink Panther mm. films. Uh, and I remember seeing him doing a Q and A about this and he was asked, you know, how was Peter Sellers to work with? And Dudley Sutton said essentially completely paranoid that anybody would upstage him, that anybody mm. might get a laugh <clears> in one of his scenes. You know, he, yeah. he was the star, he was the comedy star. He had to get the laughs. And if anybody else got a laugh, that would upset him greatly. Um that's a very that,
2: good point. That's an excellent point, which I never thought of, yeah.
0: Well, I just I wondered if that was behind the fact that, you know, Sellers is not, you know, it's by no stretch of the imagination a comedy film, and and he's not expected to be funny at all, and neither is anybody else. It's it's without a doubt, for you know, from the films I've seen, the straightest performance of Sellers' career. There's absolutely nothing in there that you could possibly play for laughs. And I kind of wonder if the fact that he was in there with... You know, you've got actors like Peter Vaughan in the cast, who, mm. despite the fact he'd done comedy as well, I guess lots of people will know him from Porridge, he's genial Harry Grout in Porridge. Citizen Smith. Yeah, completely, but also a, a brilliant straight actor as well, a powerhouse of a straight actor, and a guy who'd been, you know, Peter Vaughan had been acting since before the Second World War. He, mm-hmm. he, he'd he done 35 years of, of, of like, dramatic acting um by the time the blockhouse came around and I wondered if there was an element of of sellers you know you're not going to mess with those guys frankly <laughs> you're not going to try and upstage them because they're straight actors they're they're heavyweight actors well, he's they've yeah, been there and done it
2: maybe that's it mate because he he doesn't have anything to prove he doesn't have yeah he, that's he's, it. he's working with people like Jeremy Kemp mm. who I don't know a huge amount about Jeremy Kemp but I've seen a lot of his films or where mm. he's been yeah, he's, he's never a star is he? he's never the leading man but he's been very he's a very strong supporting actor yeah, yeah. and uh, he would appear in prisoner of zender with sellers yeah. a few years later but um i he's extremely method and there's that there's a scene in this where um his character who's called uh Gr- Grubinski? yeah Rubinsky um it's Christmas time. Somehow seller's character, which is a, a character called, um, uh, is it, what is it? Ro- Roque? Roke, Roque. Yeah. yeah. Ha- who's a school teacher, schoolmaster? Yeah. He has worked out a, 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 a system of measuring time. Yes. Using candles and things like that. And so at some point, I'm not sure how long that we're talking. It might be a year. It might be more than a year. Uh, yeah. um, it's Christmas time. They've decided. Yes. And Jeremy, Jeremy Kemp, his character is singing a hymn and he's crying and he's genuinely crying and he's he's working himself into a, almost a lather of emotions um, and just reading up about this scene. He, he had requested a doctor to be present for that scene because he was concerned that he was going to become ill. From, uh, from filming
0: it. I was reading. Apparently, Jeremy Camp had quite a tough time on this film. He, you know, it was it was not an easy experience for him at all. He kind of on the verge of a breakdown mm. throughout filming. Oh come
1: let us adore you
0: and I think from what I could gather, you know, Clive Reese, the director um, kind of worked very hard to get them into character. So it, it seems like his his approach to this was that they would he'd, he'd gather them all together in the morning and they'd have a few hours in the open air um, in the sunshine in the morning. And then at 11 a.m. or whatever, they would descend into the actual blockhouse and they would be down there in virtual pitch darkness. For the next you know 10-12 hours of filming and and you know if, if if you're a method actor in particular that's going to get to you a little bit i think i can totally understand how that would start to to, to weigh on your mind a little bit and to affect your mental health so yeah I, I did read that jeremy kemp had a you know this 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 really got to him it really affected him
2: yeah someone who was working on the film said that because it was you know actually filmed in this disused underground hospital yeah which was damp and it was, you know, the air circulations was, was fairly limited. It, he said that if you left something down there, like a script or whatever overnight, you'd come back in the next morning and there'd be mold. Right. <laughs> bite, you know, um, so it's unrelentingly grim and, yeah. and, and quite downbeat. And the thing is that they, apparently they filmed six weeks in this place mm. and and I want to just very briefly, because I want to talk to you about Peter Vaughan in mm. more detail, but I want to talk about Peter Sellers' beard. <laughs>
0: right. I know what you're going to say here.
2: I'll oh, go on then. What am I going to say?
0: Isn't it the same beard that he had on the Michael Parkinson show? It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, right,
2: we know that he was totally clean shaven on the last day of April 1972. Why do we know that? Because of the last goon show, it's the last
0: goon show of all, yes, of course. Yeah,
2: so he was totally clean shaven last day of April. Yeah, filming begins in June, so he's got to have grown a full beard, (laughs) uh, from you know during May into June, and then the six weeks, six or seven weeks filming this. Yeah, and then he turns up in October 72. (laughs) It was broadcast, but obviously, it was recorded before then. The Parkinson meets the goons, yeah, appearance. So it's a fascinating little what, what, what is that? A five, five, six months sort yeah. of capsule there of I, Seller's I, beard.
0: Wait, do you know, he he does strike me as the kind of man that could grow a beard in about forty eight hours. Well, he's got that. He's, his facial hair has that look about it. Like Robin Williams was the same. Oh, well, he, <laughs> like, yeah hairy
2: back very hairy exactly back. yes
0: mm. yeah like if, if if you left peter sellers in a room for 48 hours without a razor blade he'd come out looking like robinson crusoe i don't imagine that was a problem for him at all. He always looked like a man who might have to shave three times a day
2: <laughs> you seen the episode of the simpsons where homer's shaving and he loses his muzzle you know the muzzle for <laughs> no. about two seconds, and then it just (laughs) just comes back again.
0: (laughs) Sort of Fred Flintstone, five o'clock shadow, yeah. Uh, No, I don't imagine Sellers had a problem with that at all. I love love the fact that we can trace the evolution of Sellers' facial hair (laughs) by watching his TV and film appearances. I find John Lennon fascinating to do the same thing with... (laughs) Yes. <laughs> looking at, <laughs> I loved. I mean, I assume you've seen Get Back. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, again, with you know Peter, uh, that amazing, that amazing. Yeah, scene with mm. Peter Sellers in mm. it. I, I always love. There's, there's a. I think it's day three or four in Get Back. John Lennon has very noticeably washed his hair the <laughs> the night before. <laughs> <laughs> I say, oh, I can I can guys, I can't do a thing with it. <laughs> it's just all <laughs> over the place. And then you sell the next few days, you see it get gradually greasier and greasier. I love stuff like
2: that. Absolutely. It's the minutiae (laughs) that that people like you and I love. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, sellers
0: look uh, the sellers in the blockhouse the look of, i mean the look of all of them obviously they're, they're not meant to look healthy but sellers in particular I, you know, his later scenes in the blockhouse mm. uh, and i assume it was kind of filmed roughly in order just because of the growth of all of their facial hair <laughs> um throughout yeah, but um, the later scenes oh my god sellers looks dreadful in it he looks he looks like a very very unwell man
2: well they all do like you say yes. and and we've got yeah. Very quickly, just run through the cast because it's, it's only yeah. a very small cast. We've Absolutely, got yeah. we've got Sellers, who's above the title, although yeah. although you could argue would say he's,
0: he's not really the lead character. At not
2: because, and I think we can do spoilers here, can't we?
0: Oh, I think so. Yeah, it's a fifty-year-old film. Come yeah, because because it was lost for forty of those years. Yeah, <laughs> he, he doesn't okay. see, he
2: doesn't see the film out. No, he's his doesn't. character. No, um, uh, but you've got. Bizarrely, you've got um, uh, Charles Aznavour. But I don't understand why Charles Aznavour, was Charles Aznavour notable for his acting roles, or
0: not? As far as I can see, I was trying to work this out. I, I mean, I, I don't know if maybe Charles Aznavour is seen as this extraordinary powerhouse actor in France. Really? But, uh, but he's playing in, in Italian. UK. We just knew him for yes. <laughs> it's a curious bit of casting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He's very good in it. You know, it absolutely, it completely holds his own alongside Sellers and, and Peter Vaughan and Jeremy Kemp. I think right. excellent right. performance. Have you ever seen
2: <clears throat> Tangent? Here, it's not really a tangent. You understand why? Go. Have you ever seen the? It's, it's 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 held up as being among what? Yeah, among the worst British sitcoms of all time.
0: Oh, almost certainly. Then go on. Uh,
2: dead Ernest.
0: Oh, I, I saw it when it was on. I um Andrew Sachs as a yeah. man in heaven. Yeah. I've never seen it since.
2: Yeah, Andrew Sachs, is, and he's got a beard in that, right? Yeah. Now, as this drama, as the blockhouse goes on. Yeah. Um, Charles Aznavour, who who's got a beard. Yes. More and more resembles <laughs> Andrew Sachs and Dead <laughs> Ernest. It's quite unnerving. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I can't, your memories of Dead Ernest are far more vivid than mine. I only, I only watched it a couple of weeks ago. Is it? Is it on YouTube? Is it, is it no, available? Is it out but, there? No? Uh don't think it's out no. there. No, no, I, I've seen can it. We, can we organise some shady backstreet <laughs> drop here so I can watch it again? I can't, it was about 1982, isn't it? Something it like that. I do yeah. remember watching it at the time and, and kind of enjoying it, but I was nine years old and my... Critical faculties were not well I, I some would argue that my critical faculties haven't improved one bit since 1982. And they may well be right. But uh, maybe I should maybe I should reappraise it at some point. No, I wouldn't bother if I was you. <laughs> okay. Um, no, you've got the intrigue now. Uh, nothing else. I want to see how much like Charles Asnov or Andrew Sachs looks.
2: And just, just rounding off the rest of the cast, there's there's, 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 there's as a Jeremy Kemp who plays yeah. Grabinski, and then we have Leon Lissick, or Lisek, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. But he um I just found out he he's one of those faces that you recognize from tons of things. Yeah. And he plays Koshek, who's the... how would you describe that character? Uh I'm not sure. Is he is he Spanish or is he meant to? I'm not quite sure what nationality he's meant to be.
0: No, me neither. It's quite vague, isn't it?
2: Saying that if it's Koshek, it must be Eastern European. But Polish. Anyway,
0: Might be Polish. Polish actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, the actor. Died last month, literally less than oh, a Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um glad to hear. And he was in um I saw him recently watching the Alan Arkin film Inspector Cluso. Right, okay. <laughs> and he was also a regular character in uh, Robert's Robots. Remember Robert's Robots? <laughs> I
0: do remember Robert's Robots, yes. <laughs> what a CV that is.
2: Yes, yes. Um, but he was he, he was really good, that character, I thought. And then you have a couple of people like Per, per Oskerson, who's Lund. Hmm. Lund is the uh, desperate character who's trying to knock a hole in the concrete to escape
0: um he's quite obsessed with that doesn't he yes he's yeah, getting nowhere
2: it's a doomed venture it, completely yes um and then we have um nicholas jones as kramer who is the younger man that uh Grabinski, uh takes a, a shine to yeah as as we get through the film there's a there's, there's a sort of a homoerotic scene isn't there
0: yes there um
2: is, yeah. and then yeah and then the aforementioned peter Vaughan, who mm. who begins the film as kind of the i suppose you'd call him the the quote villain of, of the piece in the sense that he he's a prisoner functionary. He's quite officious. They call him a collaborator. Yeah. Um, and he plays of- Ofray. Uh. Yes. And so he, so when they find the wine and they start celebrating and drinking and eating cheese and all sorts, he's telling them to stop because, you know, it's the Germans, the Germans. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and, and in the end he becomes um, ostracized essentially yeah. from their group and goes mad. Now, you, you 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 yourself have interviewed Peter Vaughan.
0: I did. I was really lucky because um, I, I I used I used to work for BBC Tees, uh, northeastern radio station um and for a couple of years I did the afternoon show the main afternoon show Mm -hmm. um so I was very lucky in that I got to interview lots of people whose work I absolutely love during that period um and Peter Vaughan's autobiography was published in 2016 um and the publishers contacted me because I'd done stuff you know to tie in with their publications previously and they said would you be interested in interviewing peter Vaughan, who i guess at that stage i mean I, I it's not that long before before he actually died i think he died at the end of 2016 so mm. it was only a few months before he died he was well into his 90s i think at this stage in his life um but he looked but the, he looked the same didn't it, he took this well he it, he was still kind of acting really when i spoke to him in 2016 because he'd been in game of thrones for a few years at that point um so obviously i jumped at the chance I mean any excuse for me to call call an actor and talk about their films and tv career um so I had I think from memory about half an hour as a pre-recorded interview with Peter Vaughan um and he was just fascinating he was absolutely charming a complete old school gentleman um and I just used it as an excuse essentially to throw loads of tv and film titles at him and say what are your memories of of being in this and i always kind of i, I never paid any heed to the fact that i was meant to be doing this for a like a mainstream local general audience. radio audience mm. <laughs> Sorry. you want to know all about
2: but, trouty yeah,
0: yeah obviously we'll talk a bit about porridge but Peter I've got to ask you about the film you made in 1972 called the blockhouse <laughs> so yeah I had this lovely half-hour with Peter Vaughan who's just absolutely happy to chat about any aspect of his career um um so yeah I you know me being me I, I did ask him about the blockhouse which was a film I don't think I I'd I, I'd not long seen it for the first time, I think, in 2016, somewhere around there. Um, So it was a film that was fresh in my mind, and and I was keen in particular to ask about Sellers, knowing what Sellers' reputation was like for for bad behaviour in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. And he said he was fine. So there you go, from the horse's mouth, from a man who spent six weeks with Peter Sellers in an underground bunker. (laughs) Great, got on like a house on fire. Oh, bloody mess. This place.
1: <laughs> Getting out of control. Yes. No, Sometimes two days, sometimes one. Let's yeah. clean up. Sconti. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Ah. Mm-hmm. clean up. Yes. yes, I'd like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Too, okay, yes, Ophrey, you are right, but why can you not ask? I'm still a section leader here
2: because yeah. Well, the, uh, I've got a riddle for you. Is it a well, riddle? No, it's a brain teaser. That's not a brain okay. teaser. It's a, well, anyway. Um, I've got a question for you, yeah. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> Peter Vaughan. Appeared in this film with Peter Sellers. He never appeared in another film with Peter Sellers, but he did appear in a Peter Sellers film after. Oh, this. blimey. Um so can you tell me what,
0: oh, what that was? Oh, I hate stuff like this. Um, <laughs> oh let me rack me brains. So you're saying that he never he never acted face to face with Peter Sellers again, but he does in some capacity make an appearance in a Peter Sellers film. No, he Okay
2: <laughs> He
0: appeared in
2: a Peter Sellers' film yeah. that Peter Sellers himself did not appear in.
0: What? Oh no! <laughs> oh, this! Oh, oh, blimey! All right, a Peter okay. Sellers' film that Peter Sellers didn't oh, appear I'm,
2: in. I'm being a little bit pixie-ish here. A bit, Come on, a bit impish, out with okay, it. Okay, um,
0: give me a clue. Give oh, me a clue. a clue. All right, yeah. uh, Roger Lewis. Oh God, blimey! Um, no, go on, tell me. Otherwise, okay. you'll be, be here all day. And quite frankly, <laughs> I've got better things to do than this. Okay. You, <laughs> thanks a lot.
2: Are you aware of the? Um, are you aware of the film based on the book, the Roger Lewis book called "The Life and Death of Peter Sellers" that came of out? Of
0: course. Yeah, it's with- Peter Vaughan. Does Peter Vaughan make an appearance in that?
2: Yes, he plays Bill Sellers. He plays Peter's father. Of
0: course he does. Yes. Mm. God, I haven't seen it for a long time. Yeah, the Jeffrey Rush film. Yes. Um, and Jeffrey yeah. Rush
2: at one point dresses up as Bill Sellers. So, he's, <laughs> so Jeffrey Rush is dressing up as Peter Vaughan as Bill Sellers.
0: <laughs> oh, I wish I'd thought of that when I interviewed Peter Vaughan. <laughs> of course, you later went on to play Peter Sellers' dad. Um, <laughs> yes, blimey. God, I've forgotten all and, about that.
2: And Peter Sellers' dad, Bill. Yeah. Um, partly inspired the character that Sellers played in The Optimists of Nine Elms, uh, I believe. Uh, Okay, yeah. And legend has it that Bill Sellers, I'm sure this isn't true, but the the, the (laughs) Sellers used to put it about that Bill Sellers had taught George Formby the ukulele.
0: Ah, right, okay. Mm. Um, Well, it ran in the family, didn't it? Mm. (laughs) Um, Interesting. (laughs) No, I'd I'd completely forgotten about that. So yeah, thank you Mm. very much for that. Uh, now, Peter Vaughan was, a, I, I think, terrific actor, Peter Vaughan. And it was it was really interesting to hear, because I think I said to him, you know, what, what are your memories of working with Peter Sellers? Expecting a kind of slightly guarded answer. Uh, and he just said, wonderful.
2: Ah, oh, this film as well, um, it's based on a true story, although quite um, quite heavily altered.
0: Yeah, I was trying to find out a little bit more about that. And it does seem to be... There, there are differing stories, I think, aren't they, as to how accurate it is. Um, I have Sammy I mean, not, not When when you know the story, like as what or what seems to have become established as the story, the actual film suddenly looks like not quite as bleak as it could have been.
2: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, so the film, so shall we just quickly run through that what happens in the film? Because it because yeah. to, to to give you the real story, it's spoiler, kind of a spoiler alert. Um so you have these seven men, one by one, they turn up their toes so you have um mm. you have peter peter Vaughan's character who he goes mad and he he cuts his throat with a serrated can yes and they <clears throat> they realize that they're gonna have to do something with the body obviously they're quite they're very shocked by it mm. despite the fact that no one seemed to like him um but they they have uh, some bags or barrels of flour and they they decide that what they will do is they'll just bury him in a big big sort of mountain of flour yeah um and then <clears throat> One by one, they 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 each of them is becoming more pale, more drawn. Mm. They're getting um, they're drinking a lot. They're they they're, they're washing with wine, aren't they? Cleaning, they are cleaning themselves with wine. Um, you have Jeremy Kemp's character. As I say, he he kind of hooks up with the younger Kramer, um, and and then Grabinski at one point. I'm not quite sure what happens. I think he does he suffer. He flies into a rage and does he sort of suffer a heart attack
0: or something like it, that? He just it appears that way, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, Kramer is very affected by that and essentially removes himself and goes off. And I don't, although I don't think we see it, he kind of it's accepted that he's he's died. And mm-hmm. then, um, Koshek dies, he just dies in his sleep, I think. And then, um, Roquet cuts his wrists and plunges his hands into a bag of flour.
0: It's one of the most. Affecting and and just horrible death scenes I've seen mm. on screen I think and I, and I think it's affecting almost because of its ordinariness oh, yeah. in that he just there is no dramatic build up to it that you know that, I, that I, w- one of one of the most affecting things about the film I think is that it isn't particularly played for drama there are no huge beats in their huge dramatic sequences the whole thing is just this very downbeat deterioration of these men's physical and mental health and like you say some of the deaths we, we don't even see it's just suggested that they've wandered off into another room and kind of lost the will to live yeah just sort of faded away um but um Roque's death Sellers' death is just so heartbreakingly i don't want to use the the, the word mundane uh, about a person's death but he just does it He matter, just matter of fact it's completely matter of fact mm. he just puts his hands into a bag of flour we don't even see the act it's just suggested that he's he's slashed one of his wrists and he just lies there and yeah. and, and, and and waits to die with a completely yeah. resigned look upon his face and that's it. We don't even see it. I think it's suggested in the next scene that, you know, he's gone. They just say, as a matter of fact, Roque's gone. Roque's dead. He, he's not, he's not, he's quite a wistful
2: character, but he's not, um, He he seems among the most sort of grounded or level-headed of all the, of all the men. He does okay. like
0: you say he's he's a teacher isn't he and mm. I think he tries to he's the one that tries to both intellectualize and to rationalize the experience of being stuck in this this blockhouse so he's the one who Um, He works out how to measure time using candles and and the regularity of his heartbeat, I think. Um, He's the one that attempts to find things for them to do. Uh, There's a scene early on in the film where he's writing poetry on the walls, Mm. um, which I think in, in Roger Lewis's book, it's established that Sellers did that off his own bat. You know, it was stuff that Sellers remembered from school. Um, one of the rhymes he puts on the wall is, is one that has no other source, apparently, but what was in Peter Sellers' head, he'd just learnt it at school. Um, I wish I wish he'd written one of Spike's poems. Oh, that would have been quite something, wouldn't it? <laughs> or maybe that would have taken us out of it too it much. Would have done. Yeah, it would have done. too much of an in It's not a film for in-jokes, possibly. Um, but he's, he, uh, there's a scene where um, um, Sellers' character uh, tries to encourage them to play dominoes. Um, and I think I was, it's it's one of the longest bits of dialogue in the film. It's not a film that's heavy oh. on dialogue at all. No. Uh, but it's this scene, which apparently Sellers improvised, yeah. where he, he yeah. tries to explain dominoes to these varying nationalities that have never really heard of the game. And he tries to explain where the name dominoes is comes from um which apparently was completely improvised by sellers and it's a beautiful scene again he just underplays it wonderfully but yeah i, I this... gather
2: um jeremy kemp wasn't that wasn't that keen on that because he hated, that right? he hated um
0: ad-libbing oh um, well a ways of yes yes yeah. i can see that yeah if he was completely method and yes
2: so he was he was uneasy about that whole scene
0: i think it's the, it's it's the point in the film that comes closest to seeing kind of sellers as a it's not played for laughs, obviously, but you could see how it could have been, I think, that scene.
1: I've got here an English game. Would anyone like to play? Hmm? How about you, Kozak? Hmm? Would you like to play this game with me? What is it? It is called Dominos. It sounds Greek to me. Yes, it does sound Greek. But, nevertheless, it is English. Possibly, I, I don't know the name of the inventor, possibly it was Greek living in England. On the other yeah. hand, of course, it could have been English, and went to Greece and brought it back with him. Will you explain to us how to play this game? I can tell you one thing, it's much too simple for you, Rehobinsky. But I will explain. You were in England? No, I've not been to England. I discovered this game
0: from outside of England. Mm. Yeah, there's this this, this sort of resigned wistfulness to Sellers throughout. He never panics. Um, He does try to make the best of the situation. He just tried to rationalise the situation. And the scene, I mean, the the scene before he dies where he takes out what we assume is a, a, a black and white photo of the school where he taught and That's just right. stares wistfully at that and you think there's there, there's a man having one final look at the life that he, he knows he will never be able to reattain it's heartbreaking
2: mm. and then we have this: we have two two surviving characters which is um, Charles Aznavour's character and mm. um, Pierre Oscarson Lund and they're sitting there and the candles run out yeah and they're plunged into pitch blackness mm. and and that's it. The film ends and there's a caption at the end that says, essentially says that in 1951, the blockhouse was opened by workmen and two survivors emerged.
0: Yeah. The Having big, spent the, the past four years in complete darkness.
2: Yeah. I've got a, I've got a, um, a, a news report from the time. Okay. Um, I'll just read a little bit of, if you don't mind,
0: because yeah, absolutely.
2: So it's based on this <clears throat> true story a news item, a newspaper item from 18th of June, 1951. And it's entitled buried alive for six years. Uh, uh, It says Warsaw, Poland, a 32 year old German soldier who said he had been buried alive for six years in a Nazi supply depot was given a good chance by hospital authorities Monday to regain his health and eyesight. Okay. Uh, He said he and five companions were trapped in an underground German army food and supply warehouse by retreating Nazi troops who dynamited the entrance early in 1945. The soldier and one other survivor of the entombment stumbled bearded, blinded and blubbering from the bunker about a month ago when Polish workers cleared wreckage from the entrance to the depot. Mm. The second survivor dropped dead of shock on emerging into the daylight. Um, And it, it just goes on to say it's other his other companions had committed suicide previously. Uh, and then it says the trapped men had no tools with which to dig their way out of the concrete bunker. He said they washed in Rhine wine and encased their dead in huge flour sacks. The bodies were almost perfectly mummified. So there you go.
0: Yeah. So essentially, the the ending of the film, remarkably, is quite sugar coated, isn't it? Because all we're told at the end of the film is, and it's and it's done via captions, was that that. Two men survived, yeah, and two men emerged. Yeah, uh, we're, we're not told that neither of them survived for very long afterwards, um, which would have made a, 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 an incredibly downbeat film even more downbeat.
2: Yeah, it's an amazing story to, to, to be able to live in pitch blackness, yeah, for four years. Yeah, it you would be absolutely if you weren't if you didn't die of. Well, what would you die of if you didn't kill yourself you your mental health would be stretched to breaking point
0: absolutely yeah no it's it's such an extraordinary and touching story and i i, I think ah uh, i'm kind of i wonder why i wonder what drew sellers to the part was it simply the fact that he had no other offers on the table that, that work was essentially drying up for him or was there something about this story that really attracted him to it it's so unlike anything that he did in his career anywhere else
2: well i I, i've looked for reasons as to what why he i mean he used to he had a bit of a knack for choosing for not choosing good films
0: a lot of the time uh, i I think he's one of those that just couldn't tell the quality of a script when he saw it
2: yeah he turned down films that he should have taken exactly um but he seems he seems to have been quite proud of this film despite the fact and i think the reason it didn't get a proper release by the way was because studio execs thought that, you know, the, the beginning was so good. Right. Um, okay. And then it just becomes darker and darker I'll, and darker.
0: So it was deliberately buried by that, if you'll pardon the pun. It was deliberately yeah. buried by, by the studios yeah. who just thought it was uncommercial. Because um, well, I, I Peter Vaughan, I think, suggested when I spoke to him, there was some sort of quarrel over ownership and nobody knew where the rights lay. But it sounds like it was a little bit more than that.
2: Mm, yeah, well, as, as well it didn't help that seller's character had a french accent
0: despite okay, the fact yeah, that so people this, thought of clouseau
2: yeah okay this was before return of the pink panther but obviously he yeah. was still, he, he was still quite closely associated with yeah. clouseau um, but he seemed Sellers seemed quite proud of the film and he 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 gave an interview in 1973 around the time that i guess this film would have come out but it didn't mm. um he, he said, he described the director, he said Clive Rees, who directed the film,
0: is every bit as good as Stanley Kubrick. Um, Which is quite the compliment, isn't it? Mm. And 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 kind of curious that Clive Rees, I mean, I was looking at his IMDB entry today. There's not an awful lot on there.
2: No, he, was, he used to make a lot of adverts. He began he? like, like um, who was it?
0: Uh, Rid, Ridley Scott, didn't he start Rid, out? Ridley Scott made lots of adverts. Mm. Yes, he did, yeah.
2: So Clive Rees came through the same... Uh, tr- training, if you like, and yeah. uh, um, but he got on very well with, as you said at the at, at the beginning of the conversation, uh, Roger Lewis. Uh, Roger Lewis, when he was writing the the Peter Sellers book, mm. um, he struggled to to get a copy of the book yeah. house and so he was put in contact with Clive Reese, who invited him to a private screening, mm. and. It, by all accounts the two men got on very well and there's a bit in little sequence in roger lewis's book i just want to read where um clove reese talks about filming and he says um we had a special technique for shooting 70 feet underground very quiet and so i'd say stand by and there'd be silence i'd wait sometimes a minute then would turn the camera on then wait a bit more and i'd say action there was a terrific feeling that got to the actors and it made it easier for them to be emotional. When Sellers begins to weep because he's moved by Esnavor giving him a drink during the party sequence, he just did that. He didn't need any help with the makeup or chemicals in his eyes. He could just do it, a wonderful actor. Peter did get so involved in the part and he went through periods of depression and worry as he always did, but that was used and was embodied in the character he played. He was also smoking a lot of dope. He was on macrobiotic diets and stood on his head a lot. (laughs) So he was, he was, maybe he was kind of at one with himself at that point. You know,
0: it sounds like it, doesn't it? Mm. And again, possibly the nature of the part and the nature of the film meant that he took it seriously. Um, I think it's, is there also a bit where Clive Reese says, basically even though Sellers was well behaved on this film the kind of the the, the fear that he might not be kind of hung over it all mm. <laughs> kind of constantly mm. on edge yep. thinking like right it's going to be tomorrow tomorrow is the day <laughs> when he's going to come in and tell everybody that his astrologer has decided he cannot play the part of a man whose name begins with R <laughs>
2: or I don't know uh, Peter Vaughan turns up in a pair of lime green drain pipe trousers and Sellers <laughs> loses his shit
0: because <laughs> he can't have anybody wearing green on no. that. that was a that was a thing wasn't it yeah, that was yeah. one of his things yeah um and I think it's, there's, there's one day isn't there when Sellers turns up in a like a caftan and a hippie wig um and, <laughs> and Clive Reese does exactly the right thing which is basically to ignore it because uh, if you if you got <laughs> along with it if you if you laughed at Sellers You know, trying to be funny and and coming up with ridiculous antics, you'd encourage him and he'd do it more and Mm. it would just spiral out of control. And if you told him off for it, he'd throw a 20 and storm off set and try to get the director fired. (laughs) (laughs) So Clive Reese appears to have chosen the the absolute perfect tactic, which is to kind of vaguely roll his eyes and say, yes, (laughs) very nice, Peter, let's get on with today's filming.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I you know, it's not a film that I will rush to watch again. No, I will watch no, it again at some point.
0: It, I'm not, which is not to detract at all no. from the quality of it. It's it's a beautifully made and performed and directed film, but it's it's not one to, to stick on. <laughs> it's not one to stick on after a stressful day when you want to unwind. <laughs> I mean, the Blu-ray uh, release is very
2: nice. It's a nice transfer, and I can't imagine watching it on, for example, VHS or something like that because it's so dark, mm, yes. literally dark. It is. Yeah. Um, you you need the best quality version to really to really enjoy it, if that's the right word. Yeah. Um, would say Bob, you know, thank you for for thank you for bringing this along for us to talk about. and it's been a pleasure. Uh, and I've, I've enjoyed. Uh, well, we've had we've talked about quite a bit today, haven't we? And um,
0: we've gone round the houses a little bit, and I'm probably taking some responsibility for that, but not all of it. It's on you, there. Tyler. Thank you. Okay. Well, what have you got coming up? What are you working on at the moment? Oh blimey there's always something. I mean my my stocking trade really at the moment is uh, I'm a feature writer for magazines so I write for the Forty and Times where I do a thing called the Haunted Generation uh, which is all about that that music and art movement that's been inspired by the creepy 1970s childhood um i write for electronic sound magazine i write for the official doctor who magazine which i'm very proud of because i'm a huge doctor who fan Uh, i'm touring with the scarred for life show about again scary 1970s and 80s tv and i think we might do some more summer why stuff reasonably soon because it is the 50th anniversary of last of the summer wine next year it launched in 1973 so watch watch this space as they say
2: and it's the 50th anniversary of are you being
0: served in september is it are we doing anything for that what should we do (laughs) what did they they used to do (laughs) let's 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 both dress up and come out of a lift at different times
2: We'll both put on those brown coats that Mr. Harmon
0: <laughs> and Mr. Exactly Nash used we'll to wear do. We'll do. and wheel
2: we'll in we'll in a central display unit, which is like this automaton <laughs> that lifts up Mrs. Slocum's dress and shows her knickers.
0: That's exactly what we'll do. You and I will get together on the 50th anniversary of Are You Being Served and do exactly that.
2: <laughs> oh, Bob, thank you so much for for, for speaking to today. It's been a blast. Um, well, absolute pleasure thank you for having me and um maybe one day you can come back and talk about uh hoffman or something like that it's another cheery another oh, cherry sales film
0: <laughs> can, can i do the optimists of nine hours yeah, that's right a then. bit cheerier
2: <laughs> thanks again to bob thank you for listening please rate and review and subscribe and check out all the old episodes in the archive there's 65 plus of them now and they are all crackers they are all uh, equally dear to me they are all my children so yeah as i say if you haven't heard more please seek those out i will see you next time with a new show new topic new guest and until then take care of yourselves bye